0: Today there is a lot of deception surrounding the Sabbath and in this series we're gonna reveal the truth about it using a narrow road approach that involves both scripture and history. In this introductory episode, we're gonna see why the Sabbath really matters and why learning the truth about it might even be a matter of life or death. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm Tudor Alexander. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to discuss such important things, and today we are starting a new series, which is the series on the Sabbath. I've actually looked forward to doing this series quite a bit because this is a very important topic in today's world, and probably maybe it's not for most people because they're not aware of its importance But my goal with this series, and especially with this episode, this first introductory episode, is to impress upon you the importance of the Sabbath. Now, there's a lot of deception around the Sabbath, and that's why I decided to create this series, because not only has it been very meaningful and life-changing for me, but also in my own journey with the Sabbath, I've realized just how much deception there is on both sides. So today we're going to start an entire series, it's probably going to be about... Seven or eight episodes long, I'm not sure. I wanted it to keep it seven, man, just you know, because Sabbath is seven days but or the seventh day, but it just didn't happen. I think it's gonna be about eight episodes. But nonetheless you will learn you will learn a lot. It's a very important topic that unfortunately has a lot of misinformation, but it's very important. it's very relevant for your health, for your spiritual health, and also as we're going to discuss today for end times considerations. As usual, it is a situation where there is a dialectic between two things. And I've talked about this on my channel quite a bit. If you followed my work, especially my news updates. Um, by the way, make sure you subscribe. Hit that subscribe button and do so on my website, please. Because that is the best way to stay in touch with me. YouTube, Rumble, all these different platforms. They they do not let me control my subscribers in the sense of like having access to people and You know, if they ban you, they ban you. That's it. And there's a lot of shady stuff that they do. So make sure you subscribe on my website. That is by far the best way to do it. And it's free. I I send out content. Content is free for the first week. Most of my content is free. I have a lot of stuff like Bible studies, encouragement, uh, audios, different things that are great for your faith. Totally free. You can free, free to have them, free to share. There are some things that you have to be a paid member for like my health articles. There's about 80 research articles that I've published on health. I'm a certified health coach. Um, Books, you know, all these different courses, things that I've published that obviously, you know, I've invested quite a bit in. So that would cost you five bucks a month. And honestly, that what the reason I have that membership is A, to help me continue to do what I'm doing, and B, to prevent the need for sponsors selling gimmicky products to you, uh, renting out my podcast for advertisements, all these types of things. I don't want to ever do that. And I don't ever plan on increasing my membership. So only five bucks a month if you want to support me, uh, you know, go ahead and do that or 50 bucks a year, which is even less. It's like four bucks a month less than that. So anyway, but you don't have to do that. And if you do sign up on my website, you you'll get a 30 30 day free trial type of thing where you can just have access and check it out and see if it's for you. But nonetheless, sign up on my website. That's the best way to stay in touch. But what I was saying is, this particular topic, like many, again, if you've watched any of my news updates, is caught between a dialectic. Now, if you don't know what dialectic is, it is a problem-reaction-solution type of situation where there is always two opposing sides, but these opposing things are really, they're false, They're, they're manufactured. And the enemy uses these things to divide people. And as you'll see today, our our goal will be to find the narrow road, which really my goal is with everything that I do is to find the narrow road, to, to discover the dialectic and then find the narrow road that's between it because that's how you're free. In terms of the Sabbath, there are legalists, people who are all about, you know, it's gotta be done this way and it's a, you know, a lunar Sabbath or it's that Sabbath or evening to evening, that kind of thing. We're gonna look at all of these topics in the series. And then there are people who say, well, it's done away with. We don't need this. Don't don't Judaize. Don't be, you know, stuck in the Old Testament. And both of these perspectives are actually wrong. And we're going to look at both of these perspectives in great detail in this series. I promise you that if you know nothing about the Sabbath, by the end of this series, if you will indulge me and you will genuinely entertain this information, you will learn practically all there is to really learn about the Sabbath in terms of functionally implementing it into your life and being able to defend Sabbath keeping in a narrow road way to those around you. And hopefully this information will get out to more people because this is such an important topic. And as you'll soon see today, with end times consideration, it is a vastly important topic. It might be a matter of life or death. Now, our goal in this series will be to answer a few questions, very key questions. These are the various topics that I'm going to be doing in this series and the the next one's probably gonna be the Sabbath throughout history, looking at the Sabbath from Adam to Christ, how the Sabbath was not just created for the Jews on Mount Sinai. It's been around since the beginning of creation and everybody that's mentioned in the Bible very likely celebrated the Sabbath and I'll document that for you from Adam to Christ. Uh, We're gonna answer the question of whether should Christians celebrate the Sabbath? That's also important because that comes up quite a bit. We're going to answer the question of whether the day begins at sunrise or sunset this is a huge debate in the sabbath keeping community and it's a big deception that the day begins at sunset the day begins at sunrise and i know that's probably going to ruffle some feathers in the sabbath community but i can prove it to you and again if you'll indulge me i have plenty of documentation as usual because i like to go by the evidence we're going to look at the lunar sabbath too the lunar sabbath is another topic that is again It's a major deception, and I'm not really sure how it began, to be honest with you, but it is wrong, and it's wrong for many reasons. We're going to look at a bunch of stuff on that. Uh, We're going to look at whether the Sabbath is Saturday or Sunday. As a Christian, didn't it just get changed to Sunday? Should we just rest on Sunday because that's the Lord's day? We're going to consider that as well. We're also going to look at, very interestingly enough, when did Jesus get crucified? What day did he get crucified on? Because this is actually important to the conversation, believe it or not, it's important to the conversation in the sense that some people argue that he wasn't crucified on the sixth day and rested on the seventh, in the tomb. And so that can be used to sort of detract from the legitimacy of the Sabbath. So we'll look at that because either way, it's an interesting conversation. It's, it's related. And the last episode, probably we're going to look at some strategies on how to celebrate the Sabbath, how to enjoy it, how not to be a legalist about it, how not to dismiss it either, how to really treat it as a delight, because that's what God tells us it is. It's a delight and it's a gift. Now, a couple disclaimers that are also important. I am not Seventh-day Adventist, never was, never will be. I don't belong to any denomination and I don't have any agenda. Now, I do agree with Seventh-day Adventists about the Sabbath in principle because they're right about that. They document a lot of important history which I too will document in this particular series. So they're on to something about the Sabbath. Now, because Seventh-day Adventism has other errors, which I go over in my end-time series, if you haven't checked out my end-time series, check it out towards the end of the uh I think it's episode 30 or 31 or something. 29, maybe. I don't know. I talk about Ellen White and the investigative judgment and all this stuff. The reason Adventism manifests Sabbath keeping, or I'm not saying all Adventists do, but why people perceive Adventists as legalists is because Adventists are fundamentally synergistic, meaning they, they are free will salvation based. They reject predestination. And when you do that, you run into a lot of problems that I'm not going to open up here because it's a can of worms. I've talked about it before, and I have an entire series on salvation. It's very comprehensive that I plan on doing at some point in the future. So again, if you're watching this in the future, then check it out. Maybe it's out by the time you're watching it. But nonetheless, that's a can of worms. But Adventists are free will based. They reject predestination. And so they have a lot of tendencies toward legalism, unfortunately, like every other religion who is free will based. Look at Catholicism, look at Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Eastern Orthodox. They're all the same. They all base their salvation on free will, that you could lose your salvation. The investigative judgment gives you no eternal security, no assurance of salvation. And so you have a lot of problems that unfortunately color something like the Sabbath with this striving with this striving and with this necessity and all this kind of stuff with obedience of course we have to obey but we obey because we are born again and we enjoy obeying because it's a delight but nonetheless again i, I agree with him i don't have i don't have any agenda i was never Seventh Day adventist i have nothing against seven Day adventists but i will say this the sabbath is more complicated than even adventists might realize and we're going to look at that in this series because it is it is fairly complicated once you get into calendars and tracing the actual seventh day and all these types of things with proleptic calendars. Now, if you don't know what any of that means, don't worry about it. We're going to unpack it in a future episode. My goal is to give you a very deep and comprehensive series on the Sabbath so that you're clear on all of these things. And again, you can study to show yourself approved, that you know why you believe why you, be- why you believe what you believe. This is so important, especially in this day and age. And it's also important to have evidence to show others and and defend your points of view but here's the deal it's it's important that we realize going forward from this very point that we are not saved by observing the sabbath you're not saved by doing anything you're you're saved by having faith in christ okay we we have grace that is given to us and it's given us a new heart and a new desire and part of those new desires is to obey God and, and to do the things that are pleasing to him, the things that he says are a delight. And one of those things is the Sabbath. So my goal is that you will see the truth through this series and it will convict you because the outcome is for your good. It's for your your spiritual growth, for your health, for your connection with God. It, like I said, the Sabbath has changed my life and it's been a big difference in my own journey with God. Now, grace, another important point to that though, which will echo in the future episode when we talk about should Christians celebrate the Sabbath is that grace does not give you a license to sin in a sense. Now, most people are ignorant about the Sabbath, so it is what it is. My goal is to awaken people from that ignorance. But once you really know, like if you go through this series with me and you learn the truth, and you still refuse to do it, that's something that you need to take up with God and to really look into. Again, I'm not pushing a legalistic view of the Sabbath, and hopefully you will see that as we proceed. I'm pushing a narrow road, the, the true way of looking at it, which is a delight, and something that was given to us as a gift for our own good. Now, if God gives you something and intends it to be for your good, and you refuse to do it even after you realize that it's something that he gave you, that is a sin, I believe. I think that that is a hard issue that we need to take up with God. So I'm not accusing anybody, but look, when you get a pardon in a courtroom for committing a crime, the pardon doesn't mean that your crime was okay or that you can go and do more crime. It just means you were pardoned. We have grace from God. We are not evaluated by our perfect performance. evaluated by faith in christ but also that doesn't mean that we can just ignore god's principles and rules and things that he left for us to follow in and to be conformed to the image of christ by The, the sabbath as you will learn is a moral commandment and we're going to look at that in a future episode but it's a moral commandment so if you believe as a christian that stealing is wrong then You should also believe that not spending time with God on the day that he delineated is also wrong for many reasons. Now, the first reason, there's two real reasons I really want to impress upon you today of why the Sabbath matters and why it's so important. The first reason is health. And I mean that in a physical way. I mean that in a spiritual way, emotional way as well. It is good for your health. In Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. This is an important guiding principle in today's study and really the entire series. The Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath in the sense of like some sort of obligation. The Sabbath was made for you. Now it is a command. It's a moral command, but it was made for you. It's a good that God created for you which is really important. In Exodus, if we look in the Old Testament, we see the theme of being refreshed. Exodus 23, verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So all these people, even people who are foreigners, by the way, the alien being the the, the sojourner, the traveler, was expected to observe the Sabbath which is an important point that we'll make over and over again, especially in the next episode on, or in a future episode on the whether should Christians celebrate the Sabbath. If we look in the history of the Sabbath, we will see that even foreigners and sojourners were expected to rest, even though they weren't Israelites, which is very important. But what's the goal? The goal is to be refreshed so that you may be refreshed. That's the point. You're going to work, work, work. And you have, to, you have to have a way to reset that. God has, in his genius, provided a way to actually reset, which is intentional resting that is focused on him and on the source of life. Today we have a weekend, but a weekend is something that we spend doing superficial things, going to the movies, eating, drinking, focusing on ourselves. These things are temporary refreshments. They don't actually reset us the way they should when we have an intentional rest that is focused with our eyes on God and our hearts on God, and we we minimize worldly things, of course, it's always a practice, we are reset and refreshed. Now, in Exodus 31, verse 17, it says that God was refreshed. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and refreshed. Now, there's two things I want to point out in this verse that are very important. One of them relates to the next reason, which is having to do with the end times. But it says that the Lord was refreshed, meaning God himself was refreshed from resting. Now, that's a mystery because, again, God doesn't necessarily need to rest. Everything is effortless for him. So that's a mystery of life. But ultimately, God chose to rest and feel refreshed on the seventh day. And he set that as a sign between him and the people of Israel forever. So that's a very important thing that if God himself expects you and the alien in the at that time and the Israelites, even the people who weren't Israelites, to be refreshed as a gift for them, and he too himself felt refreshed, then are we today immune from, you know, celebrating this thing or really enjoying this benefit that God was so intentional about? I don't think so. I think it's very much part of God's plan for the human life to have a day of intentional refreshment. Now, the other thing that's really important with this, which again, it's it's a transition to the next topic, which we'll get to in a second, but it says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Now, again, if you use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, which is the correct way of doing things, not the other way around, like dispensationalists or, or sacred name people or whatever, Unitarians, if you use it, To interpret correctly, then Israel, the people of Israel, the Israel of God, who is that? Well, as of the New Testament, it reveals to you that the people of Israel are the people who God has chosen to save and are born again in Christ. That's who the people of Israel are, meaning that the sign forever is between him and the people he's chosen to save the church, the true church, the one that obeys God and that obeys the truth, and that not, again, you're not saved by obedience, but those who persevere to the end are the ones who God has chosen to save. That's what the Bible tells you. We are not saved by perfect obedience or perfect performance. Nevertheless, an important thing to remember that a lot of people don't seem to realize is that the Bible consistently says that those who persevere to the end, those who endure, will be saved. Meaning there's a sense that There are a lot of false converts. The Bible warns you about false converts quite a bit, actually, especially in the New Testament. But those who endure to the end are the ones who reveal God's plan in them, that he's chosen to save them because God perseveres his people. So the people of Israel, the true church, the people who persevere, the people in faith who are born again, those are the people that this sign, keep that in mind, sign is between them, and God forever. Isn't that interesting? How the Old Testament paints this shadow and then is fulfilled in the New Testament. So another one too that's very important is Romans 11, verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So God doesn't give you a gift only for you to throw it away and put him to shame. That's impossible. That's why the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Salvation is a gift. That's why you can't lose your salvation. The people who God purposes to save And this one is especially for Adventists out there who are maybe watching this. That you need to realize that you've been duped by your investigative judgment and your false prophet Ellen White. And I hate to say that. I'm not insulting you. I'm not trying to insult you. But she is a false prophet. And I prove it in my End Times episode on why Adventism is wrong about particular 18, like 1844 and the whole investigative judgment thing. But you've been duped. You've been duped because you've been told to reject what the Bible plainly teaches on predestination and election. If you believe in in the truth, which is that God cannot be frustrated in the things he does, then you realize that he gives you the gift of salvation and you are saved forever. You will be persevered. That is the essence of faith and truth and, and faith in God's work, that he will do the work for you to persevere you, even when you're feeling like losing your salvation. I was just reading last night, funny story, I mean this kind of just popped in my mind but I was just reading the book of Jeremiah, starting to starting the book of Jeremiah last night. And it's, you know, if you if you've read the call of Jeremiah where in fact actually let me just pull it up. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, Jeremiah 1. The call of Jeremiah. Let's let's read this together. Now, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God literally appear, somehow manifests to Jeremiah through, the, through a word or through something, through a vision maybe. And he's revealing this glorious truth, making Jeremiah aware that before God formed him in the womb, intimate connection, He knew he knew him, and he appointed him for a particular purpose. What what a profound realization to, to from God himself to tell you such a thing! Imagine, imagine such a profound thing like literally, without a doubt, a question that God himself is speaking to you. Now, what does Jeremiah say next? Let's see, verse six. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So after the brilliant revelation of the truth. What does Jeremiah say? He says, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. (laughs) I don't know about that, God. I don't know about your predestined plan because I don't really know how to speak. uh, I'm just a kid. I'm just a youth. And so, of course, what does God do? Does God allow this free will, quote unquote, to frustrate his plans that he's predestined? No. Verse seven, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Meaning you're going to do what I tell you. Don't worry. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the knowledge. I will persevere you regardless of how you feel right now in the moment that you are incapable of fulfilling this particular plan. So this is the this is the point of of the whole thing. That if you reject predestination, you're really left with your own works and righteousness. And it's, it's a tough road out there because you have no assurance of salvation but if you embrace what the bible teaches you about predestination it is a profound truth and what that means is that the gifts and calling of god are irrevocable you cannot lose your salvation now how that ties to the sabbath is that the sabbath is a gift and what does that mean in terms of all these things we're discussing well it means the sabbath is irrevocable it's it's given to you and you're going to have it probably forever even in eternity we're probably i don't know how time is going to work in eternity It'll be largely meaningless as far as aging goes, but I'm sure maybe there will still be a structure of time of seven days. I don't know. That's It's speculative, but my guess is probably based on everything that I've looked at. And you'll see maybe with uh, the next episode from Adam to Christ, you'll see that this is probably the case. Again, who knows, but it's very likely. Now, the Sabbath has implications on our normal health just from being able to stop working and, and stop the stress from work, check out of the world, rest intentionally, these kinds of things. For me personally, the Sabbath has changed my life immensely. Having a day of, of intentional rest where I am not focusing on the world, I'm cutting away from certain things, I'm foc- and also, which is very important, and also because I'm not focusing on myself or doing things that uh, you know I want to do, like go watch a movie or something. Although I I don't really feel the desire to watch movies anymore. But anyway, just an example. My goal is also to focus more on God. I go out in nature. I, you know, I read the Bible more. I do, I read various studies. I do just things that are very more mindful. And that has been a profound shift for me because it's allowed me to continue and be productive without wanting to feel like I need a vacation, without feeling overworked or overstressed. I mean, there are days, of course, where it's like, man, I have a lot of work to do. But nonetheless, having a Sabbath has made a huge difference for me personally because it has been a different kind of resting. In the past, I had two days and weekends when I was doing the whole secular thing, and it wasn't enough. In fact, by the time Monday came around, I was like, oh, God, i got to go to work again? I have to go to work again? Are you kidding me? Like, give me another weekend. It was never enough. But with the Sabbath, it's always enough. It's truly profound because, again, God intentionally created this singular day for us to be refreshed. If you do what God says, it works. It works perfectly. So this is the key. And today we've tried to do our own thing, which is a big problem. And you can see it doesn't work because a lot of people are very unhealthy. And again, the whole one day thing is, is. it seems like it's just one day, but one day spent intentionally with God makes a huge difference in your life. I, Like I said, I have had no reason and desire to go on vacation whatsoever. I really haven't. Because vacation is an invented thing. God never said, go on vacation. In fact, if you read the Bible, there's never a thing where it's like, yeah, okay, every three months, you know, take a, take, you know, two months off or whatever. There's no such instruction in the Bible. The instruction is work six days, rest on the seventh, because that is the cycle of life. That is the cycle that is optimal for the human being. In God's wisdom, he created that. And if we go by the rules, if we go by what God has said, then you will profit. That's the point. If you break the rules of chemistry, you're not going to profit. If you break the rules of physics, you're not going to profit. Of course, you're not going to break them, but if you disobey them, let's put it that way. You know, if you, if you break the rules of life, if you disobey the rules of life in general, you are not going to profit because this reality is one of rules. Again, we're not saved by rules, but the rules matter. So, conclusion, the Sabbath was designed for our healing and our well-being. It's also a treasured gift from God because it's a specific day dedicated to spending with him. Very, very important. If you're a born-again believer, what I just said should convict your heart. God, the God of the universe, the only God, has literally created a day for you to spend with him. Given you time and an audience and a a space to be with him. And of course, he's always there, but the Sabbath is extra special for that. It was designed for that. It was made for man. So that should convict you a little bit because the next thing we're going to talk about is very important and it has to do with end times. Because how you understand this topic may make a very big difference in what is coming on the earth. Now, I want to give a caveat, which is that I have an entire End Times series, and there's an episode on the Mark of the Beast that I discuss in great detail the things that I'm going to present to you here. Although we are going to look at it here as well, to some degree. There is very likely, the evidence points to a very likely reality that the Sabbath may be an issue in the End Times with the Mark of the Beast. Now, Adventists have a teaching around that, but also they tie it in with some Ellen White stuff and, you know, you can get lost in the weeds. But nonetheless, I'm going to present to you the evidence. If this sounds crazy, then indulge me. Let me present to you the evidence so that you see that this is not a crazy idea. It's not as crazy as thing. In fact, it's actually very, very likely. And that's why I'm motivated to create a series on this, why I have a whole episode on this, why we're talking about it here in the very beginning on why the Sabbath matters, because it could be an issue of life or death in the sense of mark of the beast. Now, again, if you believe in predestination and election, then the people who will learn the truth, or I should say this, the people who God has chosen to save will learn the truth. They will not be deceived. One way or another, this information is going to get to them and they're not going to take the mark because God will preserve his people. But I don't know who that is and neither do you. We're told to confirm our own election, but we don't know who is elect or not. And so my goal from my limited perspective as a human being in time and space is to present information, to get it out there and to hope that those with eyes to see and ears to hear will take to these words and learn the truth. So reason number two is having to do with the end times. And again, if you want a lot more detail, check out my end time series, especially episodes like again there's so many that are interrelated really this the the mystery babylon episodes there's two of them the second beast the image of the beast and of course the mark of the beast all these things are related and what i reveal to you there is what not too many people are talking about unfortunately but it's the truth go evaluate it for yourself it is the truth and more people need to be aware of it now the mark of the beast let's talk about the mark of the beast Beasts in Revelation and Daniel, because those are two books that are pretty much parallel books from Old Testament and New Testament, beasts are kingdoms and powers and political systems. They're not people and individuals. The, The whole idea that beasts are individuals is not based on anything. If you look in Daniel 7, the beasts are kingdoms. And the first beast of the sea of Revelation 13 has all the qualities of the animals listed in Daniel 7, meaning it is a conglomerate type of political power. Now, there's other markers that identify the first beast with the little horn, which is that it ruled for 1260 years, has many blasphemous titles, it persecutes the saints, and it receives a mortal wound. Now, the mortal wound part doesn't necessarily tie into the little horn power in Daniel, but the first three things I listed, the 1260 years, the blasphemy, the persecution of the saints, these things line up with the little horn power in Daniel. The little horn power comes out of the fourth beast in his visions in Daniel 7, which is Rome. Rome is the fourth power that Daniel sees. And I go into great detail about all this in my end time series. So if it's a little confusing, don't worry about memorizing it. But I'll give you a spoiler alert. The little horn power which is the first beast of the sea that john sees in revelation 13 is the papacy specifically it's the medieval papacy that rules for 1260 years from 538 a.d to 1798 a.d when it receives a mortal wound which is for a beast that's a political system a a political wound now if you know your history the pope was arrested in 1798 and the papacy was declared to be over So that was a mortal wound, but it wasn't actually a mortal wound because everything went underground. And in 1929, all those things were reinstated. The Vatican was created and all these things. And ever since then, it's been back on the rise socially and politically. Of course, it's always been in control, but, you know, people are wandering after the beast and they're marveling after it. And there will come a time when the kings of the earth will give their power to the woman, which is the Catholic Church, just like they did for over 1400 years through the European papal system again if all this stuff sounds crazy to you you know don't worry about it but the first beast of the sea is the papacy now why that's important is because the mark of the beast is not just like a generic beast it's the mark of the first beast you see the importance the mark of the the beast is the mark of the first beast it's it ties to the first meaning you have to identify the first beast in order to understand what you're even talking about in terms of the mark a lot of people say oh the mark of the beast is Elon Musk's, you know, Neuralink or the the jib-jab or some sort of QR code or whatever. It's like, okay, none of those things are the mark. The mark is a spiritual thing, which I'm going to look at with you in just a second. But the point is, how do you know what the mark of the beast is if you don't know what the beast is that it's being a mark of? Does that make sense? You have to identify the first beast. And the first beast is the papacy. And this system, believe it or not, also boasted about its mark of authority, which we'll look at in just a second. But the mark, let's read about the mark, which is in Revelation 13, and this is verses 16 through 18. Also, it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, the it here is the image of the beast, and that is, again, it relates to the first beast. An image is a representation, meaning There will be a representation created of the first beast, which is a Christian nationalist system. That is going to be recreated. And that system will cause both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Very important. It's not AI, it's not whatever other people think. The image of the beast is a reconstruction, it's a representation, it's an image of the first system which was a Christian nationalist system for well over a thousand years. That's not going away. Verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Now I talk about all of these things in my Mark of the Beast episode. We're not going to unpack too much of that here. I want to focus on the fact that it's marked on the right hand or the forehead. This is what we're focusing on today. If you want a lot more detail, go watch my Mark of the Beast episode, because I also talk about how not to interpret this particular set of passages. There's two examples that I use that are just so ridiculous, but they're, believe it or not, they're kind of popular, which is really worrisome. But I, but I go through those examples to show you why they're wrong in that episode, alongside showing you a more correct way to look at this. But the mark of the beast is put on the right hand of the forehead, which is which is very very important and the context is the key. And what I mean by context is we want to look at what does this actually mean when the Bible says it's on your right hand or the forehead? Does does John mean that this is going to be a literal physical thing that's happening literally on people's hands and their foreheads? Or does or is this a spiritual meaning where there is some sense that something's going on with, with the picture that this is being painted. What does it mean in that sense? If it's a spiritual sense, what does it mean that it, something is being put on your hand or your forehead? Are there other places in the Bible that discuss similar imagery in a spiritual sense? And the, and the answer is yes, there are many. And what's what we're gonna look at today so that you understand that this is actually a spiritual thing. Exodus 13, verse nine. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, it has a memorial between your eyes, meaning on your forehead, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Meaning, whatever God tells you, make it be a sign on your hand. That again, you use your hand every day, meaning you see it every day. And as a memorial between your forehead. Now, does it, is God saying you need to put something on your forehead, like the Jews do today with the law, they bind it on their hands and their foreheads? no that's a fleshly carnal interpretation of these verses god is saying i want you to meditate on my word day and night and to remember my word that's the key just like he says remember the sabbath it's actually the only commandment that he says remember why because people are going to forget and they have forgotten but moving on exodus 13 15 through 16 for when pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go the lord killed all the firstborn in the land of egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males the first, that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or, on, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, what is the mark in this particular case? The mark that is on your hand and between your forehead is relating to the, the Passover, the, the fact that God saved you from slavery with a triumphant hand that ended in the climax of killing all the firstborn, both animals and, and the Egyptians' sons, that he destroyed them utterly and humiliated them. Remember that. That should be a mark on your hand and in between the frontlets of your eyes so that you never forget that God is supreme. Of course, the Israelites did forget. They didn't follow his instructions for it to be a mark on their hand and their forehead. But again, this is about spiritual things. The hand represents action, the things that you do. You're using your hand all the time. So if you have a mark on it, oh, there we go. Got to remember. And your forehead, same thing. In your mind, what do you believe? So hand is related to actions. Forehead is related to your beliefs and attitudes. Exodus 28, verse 36 through um, 38. This is a little bit longer passage, but it has to do with Aaron and, and the high priest and the plaque that's on his forehead. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of his signet, holy to the Lord, meaning set apart. Keep this in mind because this is actually a very important picture for what we're going to talk about with the seal of God, which is coming up next. So he's got a, an engraving of pure gold, holy to the Lord, meaning set apart for the Lord, meaning elected, chosen and you shall fasten it on the and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue it shall be on the front of the turban meaning on the front of his forehead it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of israel consecrate as their holy gifts it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the lord very very important verse because again this paints a picture of something spiritual. Whatever God does is not just... When he does these types of physical things and instructions, it's not about the physical. It's always, always about the spiritual and what picture he's painting by using the canvas, the living canvas of Aaron and the, the robes and, and you know all the turban and all these different things. So now compare all that that you just read about Aaron with basically on his head, holy to the Lord, meaning this is your elect, you're saved. This is who you belong to, the spiritual reality, what's written on your forehead. It's your identity. Now compare this to the seal of God, which is throughout Revelation. Verse 7, Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Is God saying here that at the end of time, when there's going to be the judgment being poured out, that wait, 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 people have to have some sort of sign made on their forehead by angels? Or is this something else going on? We'll talk about it in just a second. Revelation 9, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, which, by the way, tree is is a picture for believers, but we talk about that in the series. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads will not be harmed. Revelation 14, verse 1. The Lamb and the 144,000. Then I looked and behold, on the Mount Zion stood the Lamb with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Are we going to have an actual name glowing on our foreheads? Or does this mean something else? Now, if you're a dispensationalist and you read these things literally, like there's only 144,000 Jews that are saved, which that's kind of... It's a low number if you really think about it. You are very carnally minded. 144,000 is a number of perfection, i.e., if you are in line with what the Bible says about predestination, God will save who He has purposed to save. The people who need to learn the truth will learn the truth. And those people will be sealed because that's what it says in the New Testament. That the Holy Spirit that is given to you when you're born again is the seal that is our guarantee. Ephesians 1, I didn't even plan for this actually, but let's go to Ephesians 1, uh, 14. Let's see if it's in here. Yeah. In him you also, this is verse 13. In him you also, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. We're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is your guarantee of your inheritance, by the way, Adventists and other people who are free will salvation. He's the guarantee. Can you revoke a guarantee from God? No, because the gifts and, of, and calling of God are irrevocable, Romans 11, 29. But he's your guarantee until we acquire possession into the praise of his glory. So you being born again, being a true born-again Christian, is God's down payment, proof to you that Christ's work was perfect and that you will inherit the earth with him. What a profound truth. What a profound reality. And so many people rage against this truth. It blows my mind, really. It really. You're raging against your own security, which is... It's nonsense. But this is the seal. The Holy Spirit is the seal. Now, if we go back to Revelation 14:1 with, with the Lamb and the 4,000, 4, what do you think this means? This means the people who God has chosen to save will be saved. In the greater context of Revelation, you, you see, you see these constant pictures of here's the bad guy and the villain and what they're doing. Oh my gosh, they're really bad. It's a really horrible villain. But wait. God is going to save everybody he's purposed to save. You see these contrasting pictures all the time. It's like he gives you the bad news, but then he gives you the good news, which is even better. And it gives you complete assurance. This is one such picture where you saw Revelation 13, which is right before this chapter, of the villain. You see the first beast. He's terrible. He's got blasphemous names, seven heads, crowns blasphemous titles on his names. He's destroying the saints. He's persecuting for 1260 years. He's just this world power that's ruling with an iron fist. Then you see the second beast who's deceiving people into building an image of the beast. And then they take the mark and everybody's just being deceived. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Then Revelation 14, God tells you, don't worry. 144,000, meaning completion. 12 times 10 to the third. So you have Numbers of completion, 12 representing people from all tribes and tongues, all the people of Israel, remember Israel of God, which is in conglomerate, times 10 to the third, which is a is number of completion. When you list it three times, it's completion. That's what 144,000 means. And they have their name, name of the lamb and of the father's name on their foreheads. That means they've been sealed. That means they've been born again. They've learned the truth and they've been saved. So God is giving you the good news, but nonetheless... Again, we're dealing with forehead and seals. Revelation 22, verse 4, they they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, is God telling you that at the end of time when you get your resurrection body, you're going to have either Jesus or, again, doesn't even specify the language, but God's name literally tattooed on your forehead or glowing or something? Is that what this is saying? Is, Is it that basic and carnal-minded? No, of course not. Revelation is a spiritual book, especially Revelation, because it's a very symbolic book. And it's telling you, you your identity, your very core, what you think about every single moment is going to be God. What a beautiful thing to be totally renewed, to have a, re- a renewed mind that doesn't think of evil things, that doesn't have any evil thoughts, has no fear, no anxiety. It is just present with God. That's what this means. And his name will be on their foreheads. So we we see this pattern, and we're gonna come back to the seal of God in in a little bit later in this episode, but we see this pattern of forehead, 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 hand, forehead, that is very important. There's more in the Old Testament that I wanna look at though, but I wanted to compare Aaron's plaque in Exodus, which again, Old Testament is picture of the New Testament. I wanted to compare Aaron's plaque with Revelation and the seal of God, which is a which is a contrasting thing. It's contrasted with the mark of the beast. We're gonna come back to this point, so put a pin in it. But the mark of the beast, which is counterfeit election, is the devil's version of his chosen people. But it's the devil didn't choose anything. It's God who chose not to reveal Himself to those people, and He just gave them gave him over to the devil, and they will take the mark of the beast. That's gonna be the devil's final show he's going to have his own counterfeit eternity counterfeit golden age with his counterfeit elect people it's not going to last very long because jesus says that the days were shortened for the sake of elect for having people alive meaning when all this stuff goes live you know that we're in the final 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 hour of all things but i wanted to contrast this thing because this this theme of again the devil's counterfeiting all the time the seal of god and the mark of the beast they're related they're, they're, they're talking about the same thing, meaning who do you obey? It's not physical seals or a physical mark. But let's look at some more in other places in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What is he talking about? He's talking about the law and the commands that God has given you. Deuteronomy verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Meaning when... He says later, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and it shall be as frontless between your eyes. <laughs> the Jews of today, again, that are very carnally minded, that are putting all these things in their bodies, that's not what God commanded you to do. So that you, everybody can see you and see you praying and see what you're doing and, and, you know, have this visual expression of your prayer. God is commanding you to focus and to remember and to put these things in the most important places of your heart so that you do them, that you live by them and that your identity is formed by them. This is what he commanded and he, what he always expected and what he continues to expect. But of course he evaluates us through grace, not through obedience, which is also important. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, again, is this talking about performing open heart surgery? Of course not. It's talking about a spiritual reality that God is pointing to, that there is a hardness of heart. So put these words of mine on your forehead, meaning in your mind, and in your actions, in your hands. This next one is Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, 18, and it's the same pattern of thought that we see throughout all these other scriptures. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. Again, we see this idea that the words are what you are binding in your heart and in your soul. The, the picture of binding them on your, on your hand and on your frontlets between your eyes, meaning your mind, your forehead, the thing that you think about the most. That's what God, that's his expectation. Again, he doesn't evaluate us based on performance, but that's his standard. That you meditate on what he says every single day, every moment. You have it right between your eyes, so you don't forget, because we forget so easily. But again, these are spiritual things. They're not. It's not talking about a physical thing, where you're putting physical prayers on your hands and your forehead, and you're shaking up and down and, and just trying to make a whole physical thing out of it. It's a change of the heart that God wants, and a change of habits. Isaiah forty four. Verses three through five: For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the gr- on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, "I am the Lord's." Another will call the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, "The Lord's," and name himself by the name of Israel. Now again, is God? You have to be consistent because if you read. Revelation, literally, and you read these things literally, then you have to say, is God saying that? He's obviously painting a picture of the new covenant here, where he's pouring out his spirit and regenerating hearts. Is God saying that when he does this, people are going to feel so motivated that they're actually going to write God's name on their hand? Is that what he's saying? Really? Like You have to be consistent and see that the pattern is always about spiritual things it always is about spiritual things what God is saying here is that when people will be born again when he's gonna pour his spirit out people will change their identity who they are I am the Lord's I am, I belong to God I no longer belong to the world and to the devil I am the Lord I'm going to write on my meaning that every time you look at your hand if you had something written on there you would remember oh yeah that's right that's how frequent you're going to remember and it's going to be part of your identity as if you wrote something on your hand so again these are spiritual things very very important now in revelation if we go back to revelation chapter 17 verse 5 we see mystery babylon in her forehead and on her forehead was written the name of mystery babylon the great mother of prostitutes and averse abominations king james has a better translation of this and upon her forehead was a name written mystery babylon the great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth which is a little more accurate. So, she has this name upon her forehead that identifies who she is. Mystery. Babylon the Great. This mystery religion that is also the mother of abominations and the mother of harlots. Very important identifiers that we go into that point to the Catholic Church. Spoiler alert. And again, I'm not trying to offend anybody. But watch my End Times series, the episodes on Mystery Babylon. There's actually two of them. There's the woman riding the beast and there's Mystery Babylon. You got to know your history, folks. You got to get out of the institutionalized religion system because it's the counterfeit that the prophets warned about. But nonetheless, this figure, Mystery Babylon, which is a vision, we're looking at spiritual things, on her forehead, she has something written that is identifying who she is. So we also know in... In the Bible throughout like the Old Testament, especially with the Israelites, the forehead also denoted your willingness to believe. Like when when God would say you have a strong forehead, you know, like your forehead is like a rock, like you're not, you're stubborn. You're basically stubborn and proud and arrogant, and you're not letting any new information in. Hard as a rock and, and, uh, you know, or a weak forehead, meaning you're susceptible to you know, various ideas. So this idea of the forehead is pointed to quite a lot throughout the Bible to denote your mentality, your mindset, your spiritual aptitude, your identity, in this particular case with Mystery Babylon and the other ones like with the seal of God and Aaron and stuff like that. So what is the point from all of these verses which we looked at? Hopefully you've gotten it, but the point is that the mark on the forehead, on the hands in Revelation is not something physical. This is so important to understand because this is one of the greatest deceptions today that people are frothing at the mouth over, We're trying to figure out, pin the tail on the mark, just like pin the tail on the Antichrist. Like, who's the mark? Is it is it the jib jab? Is it the QR code? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be an AI thing? Is it going to be, you know, CBDs? I mean, central bank <laughs> central bank digital currencies? CBDCs. That's right, not CBD, CBDCs. Is it that? you know there's so many different quali- candidates that people are pulling up, but that's because they're looking at the flesh and at the physical world. They're not considering that the Bible uses things like the head and the hand as a way to identify obedience, character, mindset, identity. They're not considering these things. and it's very clear if you look at all these verses, we looked at what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, over 10, 12 verses that clearly show that God is speaking about spiritual things, not physical marks on the forehead or the hand. The mark of the beast is going to be about obedience. It's not a physical thing. Now it will be enforced with physical things for sure. There's a physical system and that system is being made more and more integrated with IDs and digital IDs and ways like AI to track people. Yeah, for sure. But that's not the mark of the beast. That's not even the image of the beast. The image of the beast is, is a political system that is going to enforce this particular obedience to the first beast. Which again, if you watch my series, it all makes so much sense. It really does, folks. A lot of people will say, oh, that's not true, or this sounds crazy. Please watch my end-time series, especially the episodes in question that I outlined. So, now there's an objection there's an objection to this which is that the word shiragma, which is the Greek word for mark in the original language of Revelation, shiragma means physical mark. So you see, it's a physical mark. It has to be a physical thing. Well, again, this is an example of poor hermeneutics, meaning Bible interpretation principles. The word is shiragma, but what is the context? John saw a vision. Vision has physical things that are supposed to be representations or pictures of more spiritual things because he also saw a red dragon, a giant angel with a giant ball and chain, uh, you know, locusts, a woman riding the beast, all these things. If you're going to insist that shiragma means, even though yes, shiragma does mean physical mark in the context of just itself. But when you place it in the context of a vision, does it still mean a physical mark? No, it doesn't. It just means that John had a vision of people getting a mark on their hand or their foreheads, which represents something spiritual, obedience to this beast. If you believe it's a physical thing, then you also have to be consistent and say, well, there's going to be a red dragon flying around. There's going to be a giant angel with a ball and chain. There's going to be a woman that just shows up riding some giant dragon and people are going. the kings of the earth will just pledge their power to this woman because she has a red dragon as a pet. I mean, it, it's ridiculous, really. But you have to be consistent. You see, you can't you can't say, well, Sharagma means physical mark, so it's got to be a physical mark. No, you have to be consistent. And if you're consistent, it doesn't make sense anymore. So the real truth that it points to is that it's a spiritual reality. So that objection is null and void. Now, another thing I want to present you with is this. In Daniel 7... We go back to Daniel now, but again, Revelation and Daniel are parallel books. The first piece of the sea is the little horn power of, of Daniel. And in Daniel, th- this little horn power that comes out of Rome, which is the same as the first piece, which is the Catholic papacy, is described as that he will change times and laws. Daniel 7 verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and the law. And he shall be, and they shall be given into his hand for a time times and half a time, which is 1260 years total. Now, if you don't know how I came to that number, time times and half a time is 1260 days. But these are prophetic days that are being used as a metaphor or an equivalence to actual years. There's a very good reason for that. I'm not going to break it down. It has to do with Daniel's 70 weeks, but I break it down in my series A lot of people make this error. They interpret these as literal days, but they're actually years. And if you do that, you see the real antichrist power on the earth. And if you know the history of the last 500 years and how this particular antichrist power created futurism, which is the interpretation that leads to seeing these as literal days so that you don't look in history, don't look in history, you might find the the truth. If you know that, then you realize there's an agenda for reading this a particular way. But I digress. He shall think to change times and laws. Now, why that's important is Daniel is not telling you the obvious here in the sense that, well, here's going to be this power and he's going to change the times and laws. Well, every single power that's ever come to power, every king, every empire has its own calendar, its own counting system, its own laws. They always change the times and laws every single time. So Daniel is not saying, well, this power is just going to come and change the time a lot, like as if it's a, like he's repeating the obvious. So if that's the case, what is he talking about? What laws and times is he actually talking about? And the answer is God's laws and times, which is a very important point to keep in mind. Now the power of the law, meaning the 10 commandments, comes from, is anchored in, God being the creator and the redeemer. Very important. Every time the law is given, I shouldn't say, I believe most of the times it's given, but there's, we're going to look at a highlight, uh, three particular passages where God specifically anchors the law in his existence as the creator and the redeemer. Very, very important to keep this in mind. Exodus 20 verses 10 through 11 but the seventh day is a sabbath to you to the lord god on it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates so even the person who's not a jew or an israelite is expected to rest very important that this is part of god's perception on the the resting now in verse 11 it says for now what's the justification for this god gave you a commandment Gives you a, he gives you a law, what to do with the Sabbath. Then he explains why. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now there's an important parallel here to both creation and redemption. The obvious part is creation. God created everything and he rested. But if you understand that resting on the seventh day is also a picture of Christ resting in the tomb on the seventh day. As the, as the final act of the, the, the redemption of mankind, the revelation of the plan of salvation, is resting. He's, it is finished. It's done. And, and God rested in the tomb. This is a picture of both creation and redemption. Very interesting. But nonetheless, this is what anchors the law. Why should you rest? Because God rested, and he's the one who created the world. He rested because he created the world you see how it all comes together? Very, very important. We're gonna comment on this in just a bit. Exodus 31, verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. We read this verse earlier, but now I want you to see that, that the anchor for this verse and the command is because God is the creator. God created the world and because he created, he rested. So therefore you must rest. This is what is good. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Meaning, the reason that I'm commanding you to keep the Sabbath day and to rest is because I'm the one who delivered you. I'm your Savior. So, the law that God gives this is all this is really so profound in how it ties into the mark of the beast so i hope i will be able to explain this clearly the law is grounded in god being the creator and the redeemer now you know that satan wants to counterfeit god and everything that god does so by changing the the law god's law which we're going to talk about in this series from saturday to sunday Satan is trying to claim the title of God by being the creator of the counterfeit system that people are going to be part of and the redeemer by giving you all of these material world benefits in exchange for obedience. Do you see how this works by changing the times in the law and coming to the point at the end of time where that change is enforced with obedience? That change has happened a long time ago. And there's a lot of history behind it, if you know your history, with Sunday laws and Sunday persecution and demanding worship. It's been around for a long time. But at the end of time, the Bible tells you that it's going to be a worldwide thing. And Satan will have his counterfeit worship. And he'll, he'll with the people that are not saved, he will be their quote-unquote creator and redeemer. And they're going to be destroyed because of that. Now, Another thing to import to point an important point to make is that in the garden the reason we fell was about who we obeyed. Satan deceived Eve into obeying him. Adam did not obey God; he obeyed the woman who obeyed the serpent, so he obeyed the serpent. Obedience is the reason why we fell. We obeyed the voice of the devil instead of obeying the the voice of God. This is going to come back at the very end of time. Just like we come back from paradise to paradise, it's a circular journey. We come back into that same challenge. The same challenge that mankind fell from grace from will be the same challenge repeated at the end. Now, of course, I'm not insinuating that the Sabbath was an issue in the garden where Satan tempted Eve, but obedience is the issue. And as you can see clearly, this is the the theme. Who will you obey when it comes down to it? Are you going to have faith in God as as your Redeemer, as your Creator, as your Provider? Or is Satan going to be the one that's going to provide for you with the material salvation that he will offer in exchange for obedience? That's what it really comes down to. Who is your Savior? Of course, the occultists believe that Lucifer is the Savior, so they're going to be damned and everybody along with them. Now, Nehemiah 10, verse 31, there's an important point about the Sabbath with selling and buying. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So people are coming back in line. And part of that alignment, getting back to doing what God said, is do do not buy or sell on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. You're profaning the Sabbath if you're doing that. Now, the mark of the beast says that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark. Isn't that interesting? Meaning Satan's counterfeit will be completely tied to the use of this world. If you want the privilege of buying and selling and being part of this world, you will be required to obey how that is going to be enforced. I have no clue. I speculate on it in my Mark of the Beast episode, but I, I be honest with you, I don't think anybody really has a clue. But nonetheless, it's very clear where this is headed and how they will structure reality in this new system. How it's going to be enforced, we'll see. Certainly, there's the technology to do that. You know, who knows? Maybe you'll need some sort of Proof that you went to church on Sunday. I mean, who knows? In a Christian nationalist system like it existed for 1,400 years, it was fanatical, but now add the digital world and all of this surveillance and all the things that we have, it's a crazy, it's a crazy time to be alive. Again, if you think that sounds crazy with the whole Christian nationalism thing, watch any of my end times updates or uh, news updates or end times episodes towards the end, especially. You'll learn the truth on these things. But again, Satan is trying to be the counterfeit. So the people who take the mark will acknowledge that Satan is the creator of the false golden age system, the world peace that's coming, uh, and the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who gives you all these material benefits in exchange for obedience, the one who is your provider, the one who anchors the law. But it's not God's law. It's the law. It's the counterfeit law. Do you see how this works? Satan wants to be God, and he knows that the sabbath is the thing that uniquely identifies God to the law anybody can make look anybody can we all have a God gave us a conscience okay this is an important point to keep in mind God gave us a conscience that is very aware of things like okay don't steal don't kill those things are wrong don't bear false witness we know that we know that instinctively meaning it is natural for laws in governments to arise that respect the Ten Commandments because they're they're basic to life. Don't kill, don't don't, don't steal, don't uh, adultery, all these things are universally wrong. And it's natural for anybody to come up with say, okay, we need to stop doing this. But now what anchors God specifically to the Ten Commandments? You ever thought about that? What anchors God specifically to the Ten Commandments? We're gonna come back to that it's the Sabbath and you're going to see how that works. But nonetheless, here's the deal. The, re- the real danger that we're approaching on this end times horizon that is coming up very quickly is not the deep state. It's not the globalists. It's not the atheists. It's not the communists. It's not Islam, by the way, as the dispensationalists think. It is a Christian nationalist system. It's a Christian nationalist empire. And I go into such great detail. I cover it in my news updates, so check the news archive on my website. You can look up practically anything there. Just type in Christian nationalism. it'll pull, It's a good search engine. You'll find a bunch of stuff there, but you'll see the truth. And if that's the case, you have to realize that what was history like for over 1,400 years under a Christian nationalist empire? What was it like? Because history repeats itself, and it will. So, conclusion, the mark of the beast is not something physical or literal. It is not a chip, not a Vax, not a blockchain tattoo, not a QR code, none of this stuff, because it is about your actions and your heart. What do you do and what do you believe? So when when people will take the mark, it may be enforced with those things, but when people take the mark of the beast, what it's telling you is that some people are going to obey in their actions without really necessarily believing it but still they're doing it because it's comfortable they don't want to deal with the consequences and some people will be totally in love and adoring the beast and believing this is a good idea in either case both of those people are not saved and they never were saved but nonetheless this is what it's describing on the hands and on the head just like we looked at so many other verses so you have to reject that and you have to know what the mark is in Matthew 15, verse 11, Jesus says, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Nobody can force you to take the mark. There, nobody's going to like give you a jib-jab or something, and then suddenly you lose your salvation or put a QR code on you. up. Oh, you lost your salvation. Nobody can force you into doing it. It is a choice that people make of the heart, either out of comfort, actions, or out of an identity. Yeah, this is the truth, I align with this. And there'll be plenty of people like that. There's a lot of Christian nationalists these days, especially with all the Trump stuff and coming election. It is, my gosh, there's so much to talk about that, but I won't because it's a can of worms. But the Bible teaches election. Remember that the mark is a counterfeit of God's elect. God has sealed his elect, he will seal them. All the people who who he's determined to save will be saved. They're not going to take the mark. So if you're afraid, like, oh my gosh, I might take the mark, that's already a sign that God is working in your life because you're aware and afraid of such a thing. Somebody who's not elect is not very concerned with these types of things, or they think that the mark is a good thing, nonetheless. Now, I want to touch on this idea of the seal of God that we came back to, uh, that, we, that we talked about A while back that we're going to come back to now, which is this idea that God is going to save everybody he's purposed to save and how the seal of God is related to possibly the Sabbath, which anchors the law of God. Now we see the seal of God throughout Revelation. We looked at that previously through all the different chapters from Revelation 7 to 22. We looked at the 144,000 as a symbol of completion, that Whoever's going to be saved, who God has determined, will be saved. You can be sure of that. You're not going to accidentally take the mark. Now, this is not, again, it's not talking about the Jews. So if you disagree with that, then watch my end time series. Watch my documentary on why the Jews are not God's chosen people. So you can stop having such a Jewish focused view of the end times because that's a deception. But again, compare this to the mark of the beast and you have opposites now. You have seal of God, mark of the beast. Now a seal in ancient times was a seal that basically denoted certain things about a king. It denoted their title, their name, and their territory. Three things, very, very important. Whenever you had a a seal from a king, it would tell you who that person, or I guess even like a a vice-regent, it would just tell you the authority, that what's your title, what's your name, and what territory are you governing? That's your seal. Now, if you notice, the Ten Commandments anchor—or I should say the, the Sabbath anchors God's authority in the Ten Commandments and giving the law. He's the lawgiver. And how do you know he's the lawgiver? Because he rested on the seventh day. And that's part of the commandment. So that ties the commandments to God specifically. Because, again, many people could come up with the idea of, well, we shouldn't kill, we shouldn't steal, because you have a conscience. It's normal. It's natural law in some sense. But what distinguishes the Ten Commandments from any other governmental system, which has regulated these things before, is one commandment that is unique. It's unique to God. No other commandment in history is the same like the Sabbath. There's no other God or goddess or whatever else in history that has commanded their people to rest. Do you see how profound this is? I really hope you, you delight in the, the, the genius of God in doing this. Because any other fake god or false god or or king could come around and say, don't kill, don't steal, there you go, you have a righteous king and he's just so good, He's, he's the lawgiver. But what really authors God is the creator of the law, the giver of the law, the moral lawgiver, is the fact that he commanded you to rest. No other god in history could afford to do that. Because no other god in history is the provider that would say, yeah, rest. I'll provide for you on that day. They can't do, they don't have the power to do that. Do you see the genius in how God identifies himself through the Sabbath and through the commandment to rest? So not only does he give the commandment, it's a moral commandment for you, but in doing so, he links the entirety of the moral code to himself because he rested on the seventh day as the creator of heaven and earth. That's your territory the Lord, that's his name, Yahweh, and the title, creator, creator of heaven, or God. All three things are a part of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath authenticates God as the moral lawgiver of all those laws that he gave, the Ten Commandments. All of them come from God. Why? Because the fourth one uniquely identifies who gave the law, both in the sense of a seal, like an actual seal, like name, title, territory, all the Verses we looked at where God is identifying, he's giving you the law, then he justifies it or gives you the seal, to, to the stamp of approval so it tells you where it's from. The Lord, creator of heaven and earth, he's the redeemer. So he tells you his, his t- name, his title, his territory. And his function, really. Like what's, what's God's function? Well, he's the creator, he's the redeemer, he's the provider. So the Sabbath is uniquely relevant to God, and it's unique from God, as a moral command, which ties everything else into it. Now, this is a very important thing because, again, it comes back to who do you obey? If the Sabbath is the seal of God, and it's part of the seal of God, part of being sealed, and it is a counterfeit that the devil has created that he will enforce at the end of time, Then that means that people who are chosen to be saved, that who will be part of that final generation, which I believe we're living in it, to be honest with you. I think we're in that final generation. But nonetheless, people who are part of that final generation, who will be saved, will come to the realization that the Sabbath is the truth on the seventh day. Because, again, I don't know how, my guess is this. My guess is that as these things become increasingly more obvious, right now they're not. I've talked about them, but they're not that obvious. You got to really look for them. But they're there. They're there. But my guess is that as they become increasingly more obvious, more and more people will wake up. They'll wake up to the truth and they'll be saved. They'll, They'll get the seal of God, which again, remember, the seal is really the Holy Spirit sealing you. You're being born again. You're sealed. But part of that seal, in the moral sense, the moral commandments is also related to the Sabbath. If you are born again, especially towards the end, as things become more obvious, you will realize that this whole enforcement of the first day of worship somehow, however it's going to be, you're going to realize that that's the deception because the Holy Spirit's going to open your eyes and you're going to keep the seventh day. You're not going to keep the first day. Again, who knows how it's all going to play out, but you're going to realize the truth. The people who will be saved will be saved and God will open their eyes, preserve them and prevent them from obeying and pledging their allegiance to Rome. Very interesting. Again, I don't know how it's all going to play out. I don't think anybody really does. But it is going to be an issue of moral obedience. Interestingly enough, in Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Again, those who endure will be saved. But it doesn't mean that you don't have assurance of salvation. It just means that those who actually endure, you can look back on your life and say, oh yeah, that was God doing it. He endured me. That's what that means, but nonetheless, those who endure are the ones who are saved. But it says also those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, again, we're not saved by obeying the commandments, but is the Bible telling you, revealing to you something very important here? Because again, this is Revelation 14, this is the 144,000. This is the people who are sealed. Who right at the end of time, remember, let's think of context here, even though you shouldn't read Revelation linearly or chronologically, I should say. There is something to be said about the order of these chapters. Revelation 13 previously is the mark of the beast, is the image of the beast, the first beast, all these things that are talking about this final system and how it's going to enforce worship. Then it tells you in Revelation 14, hey, don't worry, everybody who's going to be saved will be saved. The seal of God will be on their foreheads. And towards the end of that, the message of the three angels. Now, again, the Adventists are all about their three angels message, which I'm, I'm not preaching here. I'm just saying towards the end of that chapter, it says, here's the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. Interesting that this is mentioned, that the commandments of God are mentioned in context of all the things that are going on with the mark of the beast, the counterfeit election the seal of God, it mentions to you the commandments of God, those who keep the commandments. Because why? Maybe that might be an issue towards the end. Maybe that might be an issue towards the end. Now, the question is this. Does the seal of God, does the Sabbath, do the end times, do the commandments, do all these things have something to do with each other? Is there something in common? And the answer is yes, very likely so, very good candidate. The question is, how will people worship or be forced to worship? And I, just, I and I talk about that in my End Times series on the Mark of the Beast in great detail. We're going to talk about it also in this series towards the end when we look at whether the Sabbath is Saturday or Sunday and what happened with Sunday. But I want to briefly outline it today here. In 321 AD, Constantine basically created the new Christian nationalist system and created the week that we have today where Saturday is the seventh day of the week and Sunday is the first day. He also mandated worship and rest on the seventh day. It wasn't a it wasn't a big deal when Constantine did it. I mean, Christians were told not to Judaize. They weren't killed because they had just stopped being persecuted, but they were, you know, it was enforced, let's put it that way. In 380 and 386 AD, two years, 380, 386. Theodosius, who was after Constantine, made a Sunday law and made Roman Catholicism mandatory. Very important. 386 to 469 for about 100 years. There were seven laws, five and two, seven laws that regulated worship and rest on Sunday throughout the Roman Empire. Then you had the Inquisition, the Middle Ages, Christians like the Waldenses were basically called heretics if they kept the Sabbath and they were killed and persecuted. Crusades, all kinds of things that were just bloody, bloody history. Remember what the Bible says about the first beast, trotted over the saints. They were given into his hand for 1260 years, which is true. Then you have the modern day, up until the modern day, 1888. Alonzo T. Jones tried to do a nationwide Sunday law. You have banking laws that are already in place. People already closed their shops on Sunday. It's already part of the mentality. You have the idea of a weekend where people think that Sunday is the end of the week, but it's not. It's the beginning of the week. You have the green Sunday movement, climate activism, the whole climate change agenda that the Pope is pushing the secular day of rest that people have talked about. We need a secular Sabbath. Sunday is good. You have COP 27 and the 10 climate commandments, which, if you know anything about that, again, it's all part of the same push towards one world system where the mark of the beast will be enforced. You also have Project 2025, which I've covered in a separate video. So if you are interested in that, go watch it. Look in my news updates on my website and type in Project 2025. You'll find it. But that is an interesting thing. It's coming very soon. This is the time of this video. It's 2024. Look into it. If you think I'm crazy about a Christian nationalist system that will enforce a Sabbath, think again. Watch my video on Project 2025. Now, we know a secular day of rest has been pushed for quite a while. And they're even saying, oh, there's benefits to it. You know, it's good for stress, for the psychology. Now they're tying in the climate change thing into it. We need a day of resting for the environment. So no more pollution. The Pope is uniting the world around climate change. There's the whole Green Sunday movement that I mentioned, and it's all for the environment. But again, Exodus 31, 13, what does it say? You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Again, do you see, do you see how God, it's just so brilliant, man. It's really, the Bible is amazing, amazing work. God always anchors everything to himself. He gives the law and he tells you why, because it's based on him. He's the one who sanctifies you. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. Now, if you keep the day that the devil's going to declare as the one that's mandated for rest, what are you saying? You're saying that the devil sanctifies you. God forbid, what a what a horrible thing. But that's what people are going to do through the mark of the beast. They're going to obey the devil as the creator, the provider, the redeemer, the sanctifier, and they're going to be destroyed as a result. Satan's counterfeit sign is the mark of the beast. Just like God has a real sign between him and his, him and his people, which again, it's all tied to rest, redemption, creation. It's all, it's beautifully interwoven. And there's so many layers to it. It's like looking at a gem that's cut with so many faces. It's truly profound how it works, but it's all tied to God. And of course, Satan wants to counterfeit that, and the occultists believe that Satan is the savior. If you don't believe me, go read The Secret Doctrine. Go read uh, Isis Unveiled by Helena Blavatsky. Go read those things, look into them. That's what they believe. Now, God has decreed that the occultists, the devil worshipers, will have their false golden age. God has decreed that the devil will be worshipped. Why? To test this final generation and to prove his plan of election, that only people that he chooses to redeem and give supernatural awareness to will wake up. Because what does Jesus say? The deception will be so great. Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 24. I could be wrong, but the deception will be so great that even the elect would be fooled if it were possible. If it were possible to fool God's elect, they would be fooled. That's how great the deception is gonna be. What's the point? The point is that without God supernaturally intervening in your life, giving you the spirit, giving you the seal and sealing you, you would be deceived. That's how profoundly deceptive what's coming on the horizon is gonna be. The golden age is gonna be very real. It's gonna be false golden age, but it's gonna look and feel very good. And you're going to be part of it through the mark of the beast. And you're going to have to make a choice at some point where you say, I don't want to be part of this system. I don't want to worship the devil. I don't want to pay homage to this false love and light and this false prosperity and this false peace. I don't want to be part of that. It's going to be very seductive. And those who the Holy Spirit has sealed and redeemed and opened their eyes will wake up. That is the good news of the Bible, that nobody will be lost. But the devil will be worshiped. And that's going to be to separate the elect from the non-elect because the mark of the beast, there would be no point. Here's another point to keep in mind. The only reason there's a mark of the beast is because there are elect. Make sense? There's always been elect, but the mark of the beast has to do with the final generation to separate those two clearly so that God's glory can be revealed. Because only through God's power will you be able to see the truth. And I hope that this series will wake you up to the truth. And I hope that this episode has woken you up to the importance of the Sabbath, both as a, as a health thing for your health, for your spiritual health, and as a way to be wise about the end times, Do not be deceived. That is how Matthew 24 opens up. See to it that nobody deceives you. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, that even the elect would be deceived if it was possible by what's coming down the pipeline. So I hope you've learned something. I'm excited to get into this series with you. There's so many important and interesting bits of history and scripture we're going to be going over. If you have any questions about these things, always feel free, feel free to email me at tutor at I'm always there for you. I might not get back to you right away, but... Nonetheless, shoot me an email if you have a question, if you're struggling with understanding how to practice the Sabbath, if you are coming from a legalist background, if you're coming from a background that says, oh no, it's not, it's done away with, and you're trying to understand how to incorporate it into your life, then shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer any questions for you. The Sabbath has changed my life, and I truly hope it changes yours.